0: Uh, So our Bible reading is from Acts chapter 20, verse 17 to 31. Uh, You can find that on page 1115. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents... You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears.
1: Our next reading is from 1 Timothy 1 on page 1192. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is, not, is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for the very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have sh- suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme.
2: Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Andy. Uh, keep your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we spend most of our time this morning. The Acts passage is a helpful one to get the background of the situation. I find sometimes you, you read a book of the Bible and it's hard to sort of know where exactly you're diving into, but um, that's just there to provide some context. Uh, there's an outline in the leaflets as well, if that's helpful for taking notes. So we see that a big reason of why Paul writes this letter is in verse 3 certain people are teaching false doctrines. So they're teaching things that aren't true. Then in verse 4, Paul tells Timothy that the church is supposed to be advancing God's work. That's the role of the church. But what are they doing instead? Well, they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote controversial speculations. We see in verse 6, they've departed from what is good and they've turned to meaningless talk. So the church has been distracted from its task. It's been given the job of advancing God's work, but it's been distracted by other things. Feel like those? I don't know if you've seen them. Those police now targeting inattentive driving signs that you see driving around sometimes. They've, they've been given an important task to do, and they're getting dragged away doing something else. Now, we don't know exactly what these myths and endless genealogies and speculations were. Most, most likely what had happened was that the teachers at that time had added things to the Jewish law, or at the very least, they'd made quite strange interpretations to it. And from there, they drifted further and further away from the truth. And it becomes clear in verse 7, the problem was that people in the church were teaching the law that they had no idea what they were talking about. And so Paul says in verse 8, the law is good. It's good if it's used properly. And the law was definitely a good thing. It had been given by God to his people to show them how to live in a way that pleased him. But it's only good when it's used properly. The church in Ephesus had somehow misunderstood the law. And so they weren't using it properly. But how exactly had had they misunderstood the law? Well, it becomes clear in light of what Paul says next in verses 12 to 17, as he reminds Timothy of the gospel message and how this message was displayed so powerfully in Paul's own life. Paul says in verse 13, "'Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man,' I was shown mercy. And then in verse 15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Jesus came to save sinners. As we saw in the Acts reading in verse 21, everyone is in the same boat. Everyone is a sinner who needs to be saved by turning to God in repentance. And having faith in Jesus. Now, you might be here this morning just checking church out, not necessarily a Christian. Um, and to hear that everyone is a sinner, well, it sounds pretty negative and judgmental, doesn't it? Certainly doesn't sound like a glorious message. You might be thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person. Do I need saving? The thing is, though, being a sinner, it's not so much about whether the bad things that we do outweigh the good things that we do. Sin goes much deeper than our actions. It's about how we relate to God. Now, there are three words that Paul uses to describe God in this passage. He calls God Father, in verse 2, and King, in verse 17. And these words are both powerful illustrations of how God relates to us and how we ought to relate to God in return. God is a king who demands our loyalty. He demands our obedience. But, and appropriately appropriately enough for today, he's also a father, a loving father who knows us and who loves us deeply. And sin is that part of us that refuses to obey our king. It's that part of us which rejects our father's love for us. Sin is what makes us reject and rebel against God. To want things our way, not God's way. And so it separates us from God relationally. It puts us in a position where we need saving. And so the other words that Paul uses to describe God is there in verse 1. Saviour. God saves us by sending Jesus to take the punishment that we deserved, so that we could have eternal life. Verse 16. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, whether you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus or just checking church out, there's one person who knows your heart better than anyone else you know. And that person is you. We each know all the the good, the bad, and the ugly about ourselves. We know that we're far from perfect. Now, Paul, who's writing this, he certainly knew that about himself. Paul had persecuted Christians before becoming a Christian himself. He'd caused great harm to the church. And even after writing out this long list of sinners that we see in verses 9 to 10 here, lawbreakers, rebels, Slave traders, people who kill their parents, a pretty nasty bunch of people. He's still able to declare in verse 16 that the worst of sinners is himself. Now, I'm sure there were worse people in the world than Paul when he wrote this letter. I don't know how you worked that out, but I'm, I'm sure there were. But Paul could call himself the worst of sinners... Because for all it mattered, he was. He knew his own faults much better than he knew anyone else's. And so, as far as he was concerned, the fact that Jesus would have mercy on him was an example that anyone could believe in Jesus and be saved. It was testimony to God's amazing kindness and mercy in sending Jesus to save sinners. You've probably seen ads that uh, are warnings about texting while driving, that sort of thing. The Motor Accident Commission does a, a fair few of those sorts of things. I probably should have got the Motor Accident Commission to sponsor this sermon, given the amount of road safety things I'm bringing up. One, one of the most powerful advertisements for this that I've ever seen was a video. I saw it a few years ago. I was doing the rounds online and what they'd done is they'd got a, a bunch of you know, people in their 20s, that sort of thing, to come in and they'd, they'd asked them the same questions over and over again, questions about whether you text while you drive and all of the people were answering the questions saying, oh yeah, you know, I'll, I'll be driving along and I'll get a text and I'll look around and if there's no, no policeman there, yeah, I'll, I'll get it out. It's probably dangerous but what are you going to do? And so they, they all gave sort of barely arrogant sort of answers like this. And then towards the end of the video, a woman walks into the room and you can see everyone just silently watching her because they know, wow, this, this wasn't meant to happen. What's, what's going on here? And the woman sits down in front of them and proceeds to tell her story of how she caused a fatal accident while she was texting and driving. And everyone was... All these people who had been cocky and talking about how they were texting while driving a few minutes ago suddenly watching her, and most of them were in tears by the end of the story. And they were were walking out of there saying, look, I'm never going to text and drive again. It's a bit like that for us. It's, It's only when we grasp the gravity of our sin that the gospel message will ever impact us, that the beauty of the gospel message will hit us between the eyes. And this helps us to see why the Ephesian church had it all wrong. Because the law was their focus. They were relying on the law to save them. But obeying the law can't save us. The law can only show us our sin. That's why Paul gives that long list in verses 9 to 10 of all these different sins. Because the purpose of the law is more like a mirror. It's a mirror that shows us when we're disobeying God. But it's only Jesus' death in our place that can ever make us right with God. We can't do it on our own. And it's important to understand the balance here. If we've put our trust in Jesus, if we believe that his death and his resurrection are the only ways for us to be right with God, If we've repented and we've turned away from all the things in our life that we know aren't pleasing to God, then we're saved. Our sins are forgiven. We have the promise of eternal life. It's all about what Jesus has done, not about what we do. But at the same time, the way that we live does matter. Because faith in Jesus, it's not just a one-off decision that we make. It means living our lives in grateful response to what he's done for us, wanting to to please him and to honour him in everything. It's a bit like flowers. Now, my wife, Alicia, loves flowers, so I try to buy them for her on a regular basis as much as our budget allows, and I think it's a good thing. But it's not like flowers are the thing that's brought our marriage together. I didn't have to buy Alicia a hundred bunches of flowers before we got married. And flowers, they're not the thing that holds our marriage together either. Our marriage doesn't keep going because I've worked out that if I buy her flowers every four and a half weeks, that seems to keep her happy. I haven't worked that out. Don't try and use that formula. Anyone? The thing is, the flowers are an expression of love, aren't they? And it's love that holds our marriage together. So the flowers aren't the thing that holds the marriage together, but they represent the thing that does. If I never bought flowers for Alicia, even though I know she likes them and they really don't cost that much and the shop isn't that far away from my house, <laughs> you'd have to question... dig <laughs> digging myself a hole here. <laughs> you'd have to question how much I loved her, really. And if I didn't love her, then what's holding that marriage together? So it's the same... We obey God not to earn his favor, but in response to what he's done for us. And out of love for him, out of gratitude for him saving us. And it's important to have that balance right. Because when we do, it's going to free us from seeking our identity in what we do. It will mean that our our Bible reading, our prayer, our giving at church, our serving, all those things will be done joyfully. We won't be trying to impress God with our obedience, but we'll be responding to him in great joy. Now, a sign that perhaps we've got the balance just slightly wrong in that way is if we ever find ourselves thinking that perhaps God values some people more than others. It's It's an easy trap to fall into. You look at the person who is on the leadership team, who's singing in the band, who runs the kids' programs, who has lots of great evangelistic chats with his friends, and you just look at that person and you think, wow, God must value that person so much more than me. Or we look at the person on the other end, the person who's struggling to get their life together, they're struggling to find time to pray and to read the Bible, and and we can just think to ourselves, yeah, I guess God's pretty happy with me in comparison. Well, no, the gospel tells us that we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners who Jesus came to save. And this helps us to understand what God's work is back in verse 5, the work that the church is supposed to be advancing. Jesus came to save sinners. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives eternal life. People need to believe this truth and to build their lives around it. This is God's work, and it's the church's mission. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, which we read, Paul talks about the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. It's Paul's task, and it's ours the problem in Ephesus was that the church had been distracted from this task. So what's our purpose as a church? Our purpose is to celebrate and to advance this gospel message. How is the gospel advanced? It's when people put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour when people grow in that faith and live lives that honour God. The gospel is advanced as we make and grow disciples of Jesus by God's power. And if that's our purpose as a church, then it's going to shape everything that we do as a church. Cameron talked a couple of weeks ago, for those those of you who were here, about the danger of religious consumerism. So that's where um, going to church is really not that much different to going to the movies. You, you go there, you pay your money, you expect a good product, and really you're there to observe. You're not there to contribute at all. A couple of weeks ago I went and saw the latest Mission Impossible movie, Mission Impossible 6. I didn't contribute to anything, I just rocked up. I paid my money to the, the person behind the cinema counter and I went and watched the movie. I didn't contribute anything. I didn't help them to sell tickets or sell candy. I certainly didn't help them to produce the movie or anything like that. I just went there. I was a spectator. And if the movie had been bad, I would have complained to Alicia in the car on the way home. The movie was actually quite good. I'd recommend it. Um, A mindset of advancing the gospel is quite different to that, though. Maybe a a slightly closer example. I don't know if if any of you saw this while the, the soccer World Cup was on or the football World Cup, whatever, terminology you like to use, it was on a couple of months ago. Uh, Japan played their, I think it was their first game, they were playing Columbia or some other team, I'm not going to pretend I know anything about soccer. They played the game, they won the game, and the Japanese fans who were there celebrated for five minutes or so after the game, and then they proceeded to clean the whole stadium. They, They brought rubbish bags to the stadium and they just cleaned all the rubbish at the stadium. So you'd never have that happen in Australia. That's that's a bit more of a picture of someone contributing as part of being a part of something. Well, I would say that a mindset of advancing the gospel goes even further than that. It means coming to church excited, not just about being able to grow in our own faith, but being able to build up other people as well. It means looking out for people who are new, wanting to see them welcomed, wanting to see them feel like part of our church family. It means serving with joy, knowing that stacking chairs or pushing the button to change the slides, they might not seem like particularly important roles at the time, but they do play an important role in the big picture of what we're doing as a church. It means staying after church to to get to know people, to get to know what's going on in people's lives. Perhaps it means inviting people over to your house after church for lunch. We, um, we had Robin and Emily up the front a couple of weeks ago talking about welcoming and Robin talked about how when she's driving to church, she's not here so I can embarrass her, when she's driving to church she, she always has the same prayer that she prays, God please show me who I should be speaking to today. I think that's a really great prayer, it's a gospel advancing prayer. And it's not just on Sundays that this mindset of gospel advance really comes to the fore. If you're not in one of our midweek growth groups, I'd really encourage you to, to join one of those. Growth groups aren't something that we run just for the sake of having growth groups. We run them because they're a great way for everyone to experience a deeper level of fellowship than you're likely to get most Sundays. There's something about meeting each week with a group of people sitting under God's word together, sharing life together, praying for each other, uh, that really helps us to realise the privilege that it is to be part of God's family. So coming to our our larger church family on a Sunday and then having that smaller family on a a weeknight is a really great way to get that fellowship happening all week. If you are part of a growth group, it would be great to, to keep making it a priority to be there, Each week to be investing in the other people in your growth group family. To come each week wanting to see the gospel advance, wanting to see each person in your growth group walking stronger and stronger in their faith each week. A mindset of gospel advance shapes everything that we do as a church. If we didn't care about advancing the gospel, There'd be a lot of really compelling reasons, I think, wouldn't there, not to plant down at Woodcroft next year. We'd save money, there'd be a lot less effort, you wouldn't have to fill out those cards that that Colin's just given you. We could all stay in one church and not have to say goodbye to anyone that we love next year. Planting a new gathering is going to be harder than everyone staying here would have been. But that's what God calls us to do, to work hard for the gospel. There's a great opportunity to bring this gospel message to people down south who perhaps haven't yet realized what it means that Jesus came to save sinners and to offer them eternal life. The privilege of being God's people, of being part of God's church, is being part of something that goes Far beyond ourselves. It's a bit like when the Olympics are on every four years, there's always the, the procession with the torch, so the torch starts somewhere and gets carried by a whole lot of different people and ends up um, at the arena. Being God's church is like being part of that Olympic torch relay. We're, we're part of something that is happening before we arrived, something that in all likelihood is going to happen for many years after we've gone. Um, but something that God is doing and something that He is using us to be at work in. So, advancing the gospel is important, but it won't just happen. It's a fight. Paul tells Timothy in verse 18 that he's in a battle, and he reminds Timothy of these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had shipwrecked their faith. They'd rejected good conscience, which in the context here probably means that they've turned to false teaching. And that has ruined their faith. A shipwreck in that day and age would have been a devastating metaphor to use. Like you imagine a ship twice the size of this gym that we're meeting in, collapsing under the weight of massive waves, miles and miles away from shore, deep water, very little chance of survival. It's a devastating metaphor I was thinking I could continue the road safety theme and use some sort of car crash metaphor today, but I think a shipwreck is probably an even more impressive one to use. And Paul says that he's handed both of these men over to Satan. He uses a similar expression to that in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, where it's clear that what he means is that he's removed these men from the church so that they don't lead others astray, and so that, God willing, they might realise their error and they might turn back to God and be saved. There's a lot at stake here. People's eternity hangs on whether they have faith in Jesus. The gospel is life-changing news. Everyone needs it. The advance of the gospel is the most important thing happening in the world at the moment. I hope you believe that, that the, the advance of the gospel is the most important thing that's happening in the world. And God is using us, his church, to do it. That's the big message of chapter one of 1 Timothy here, that God is using his church to advance the gospel, to proclaim that Jesus came to save sinners and to make and grow disciples of Jesus. In the chapters that follow, we'll see some of the things that we need to have in place as a church, as we seek to advance the gospel, as we seek to be as effective as we can be as a church. Chapter 1 has given us the big picture, if you like, and we're going to see more of the details in the next few weeks. It's an exciting and challenging picture of, God wants, of what God wants his church to be. And I'm looking forward to us exploring it together in the next few weeks. But for now, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that Jesus came to save sinners. And we pray that the significance of that would not be lost on us, but that we would know each day what that means for us, the joy of being brought into relationship with you, being made members of your family knowing that if our trust is in you, our eternity is secure. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to be single-minded, to be seeking nothing else but the advance of your gospel, and that you'll be using us as Trinity Church Brighton and as a second church next year to be bringing great glory to you, to be showing people their need for you, and to be making and growing disciples who might bring great glory to you.